0: On July 30th, 2020, President Trump made claims of voter fraud and suggested he wanted to delay the upcoming election. Does the Constitution give the President of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances? Does federal law? Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if if I give off-the-cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind.
1: That was Judge Amy Coney Barrett finding a somewhat creative way of doing what Supreme Court nominees have been doing for several decades now, refusing to answer how she might rule on any conceivable future case or controversy should she be confirmed. No matter how senators tried, they got nothing out of Barrett about where she would come down on cases involving health care, abortion rights, gun regulation, or any of the other many issues that will be before her or could be before her as a Supreme Court justice. It may have been what has become par for the course in such confirmation battles, but rarely have the stakes been so high as they are for the Barrett nomination. We'll discuss our confirmation hearing with two close students of the Supreme Court and the political process, Elise Hogue, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and David Kaplan, author of two books about the court, on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I was thinking uh, just a few weeks ago, after Justice Ginsburg had passed and uh, Judge Barrett had been nominated, I was referring to the confirmation battle over Judge Barrett as being one battle royale for the ages. But it's pretty clear after watching two days now of the uh, Senate Judiciary hearings on Judge Barrett's uh, nomination that it's really not much of a battle at all. The Democrats are using their time mainly to talk about the Affordable Care Act and try to um, score political points about uh, the dangers and the harm to individuals that could result if uh, the Affordable Care Act is overturned with a Justice Barrett joining a majority, but they don't seem to believe they've got really any chance at all of blocking her confirmation before Election Day.
3: Well, I I slightly disagree with you, Isakoff, because I think- What? um... Wait a
1: second. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) That cannot be tolerated on Skullduggery. I think-
3: I think there is, there was a battle playing out in the confirmation hearing today. It just wasn't about Amy Coney Barrett's, you know, nomination to the Supreme Court. It was about the election. Yeah. And I think, you know, it is the results have been known for weeks now, pretty much, because Mitch McConnell had the votes. And unless there was some dramatic new information that came to light, she was going to be confirmed. But the battle that played out today, yesterday, and today was about the presidential election and a bunch of Senate elections, because a bunch of people, Republicans in particular on that committee, are in the middle of very, very tough re-election battles. Starting with so, the chairman,
1: Lindsey Graham.
3: <clears throat> including the chairman, uh, Lindsey Graham. So that is why the, the ratio... I mean, look, senators are always blowhards and tend to give a lot of speeches up there. But typically... Confirmation hearings are a little bit different. They do ask a lot of questions. And there were some questions asked, but I you know, I, I don't remember a time when this many, particularly Democrats, because they're the ones who are trying to block this nomination, didn't ask very many questions at all, in some cases, no questions, and simply got up there and made you know, speeches. But I think, you know, I mean, to look at it a little more charitably, they spoke directly to the American people about issues that they think are really important. First and foremost was the Affordable Care Act. And just to make the point about these Senate races, on multiple occasions, including Kamala Harris, they didn't just talk about the you know, 20 million people who who stand to lose their health care if the Affordable Care Act is overturned. They broke it down to individual states and how many Americans would lose their health care in those states. And which states did Kamala Harris mention? South Carolina, the aforementioned uh, Lindsey Graham. North Carolina, Tom Tillis is in a very tough race there. Iowa, where Joni Ernst is fighting for her political life. So, this was pretty obvious what they were what they were doing and at the same time also trying to reach out to really the most important democratic constituencies in this race, you know, including, you know, suburban women and, you know, moderate voters who Joe Biden is trying to reach out to.
1: Yeah, this struck me as a confirmation hearing that was scripted at least on the Democrats' part, uh, by uh, the pollsters, that these were poll-tested questions. Uh, I would have thought that the primary focus for the Democrats would have been the process itself. The fact that this was a a nominee who's being rushed through in the closing weeks of an election in which people are already voting— and how hypocritical it was for Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to be doing this, rushing it through after, you know, four years after they blocked Merrick Garland from even having a hearing. But it's pretty clear that the, the pollsters for the Democrats said that's not the winning issue for you. Let's go to the Affordable Care Act and let's hit that hard right. and repeatedly.
3: And what's interesting, Isakoff, is when they did make that, prosecute that case about how this thing was being rammed through, they did it in the context of election issues that that resonated with the American people. So on on a number of occasions, you heard Democratic senators say that the American people would rather have Congress focus on getting a stimulus bill passed than, uh, but you know, before voting to confirm a Supreme Court justice and and rushing uh, a confirmation through the Senate, and interestingly, our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll showed that by an overwhelming majority, sixty some odd percent—I don't remember the exact number—Americans agreed with that that they 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 would rather see a stimulus bill passed than than this confirmation kind of. I gotta say, through. but but. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would
1: say even more than anything that took place in the uh, in the Senate hearing room today was uh, the exchange, I don't know if you caught it, between uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Wolf Blitzer. And Wolf Blitzer, uh, and yeah. That was pretty amazing where, you know, Wolf was pushing her on, why don't you agree to some stimulus bill? It may not be everything you want, but there are people suffering out there. And Pelosi just brushed him off and... And even like shot back, why are you doing talking points for the Republicans? Why are you defending them? Even when Wolf Blitzer was quoting one of her own Democratic members, Roe Conner, saying we got to do something here. There are people who are in need and, you know, something is better than everything. And I just wonder if I I fully expect that's going to get it. A lot of play on Fox News, and I think it's going to cut. I don't think Pelosi helped herself. Oh yeah! In uh, fact, on we on just this. posted
3: a story on that minutes ago. I, I don't think. I think this goes beyond Fox News. I think this is going to re- resonate with a lot of people because there are a lot of people suffering out there. And I think, look, I think Nancy Pelosi is probably somewhat anguished ab- about the position she's in right now, which may be why she <laughs> reacted the way she did because she knows that she is in a difficult position here. And clearly, you know, that was uh, a little bit sensitive for her. And so yeah. I think that's well, maybe I, why she had that reaction. I expect
1: we'll be seeing Republican campaign ads uh, very quickly, putting that up there. But yeah. look- Just um, back to
3: the hearing for sure. one second, because I want to do one point just playing off of the intro where uh, Amy Coney Barrett, in response to questions from Dianne Feinstein says, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be a, you know, a legal pundit. But- it bears pointing out that that the question that Amy Coney Barrett refused to answer was whether the Constitution allows the President of the United States to delay an election. That, of course, is a relevant question because uh, Donald Trump, a few months back, talked about, uh, should we delay the election? The fact that she ignored that question, I thought was, uh, or dodged that question, was pretty revealing because that's not a, case that's going to come before Amy Coney Barrett that, you know, the article two of the constitution clearly empowers Congress to set the timing of the election. And, you know, Congress set that date in a, like an, you know, 19, 1854 or 1845 law, whatever it was that it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So there's no, there's really no uh, issue there that could come before her. You know, I mean, Congress, of course, could change the law and then the law would be different. But uh, so you know, that was either a lapse of knowledge on her part or just a sort of silly effort to not answer a question. That might have displeased uh, the president. Well, I, I, I hate
1: to uh, correct my co-host, but Article two is executive branch powers. It's Article one that gives Congress the power to set Election Day. So and it's pretty clear that that's what Congress has done in this case. And um, yeah, I, I suppose the argument for Barrett would be that it is entirely Plausible that there could be cases arising out of this election that end up before the Supreme Court.
3: I think I was thinking about, I think I was thinking Article 2 because, you know, the kind of position of some very conservative Republicans would be that under Article 2 the president has a a maximalist (laughs) set of powers that will let let him override an act of Congress. I think think John, you actually argued that in in the context of torture and indefinite detention.
1: Which does remind me, we should do a show at some point about all the uh, secret national security emergency powers that presidents have claimed over many decades now, much of which remain classified. And we don't know the degree to which a president could declare a national emergency and how far that would allow the president to go in, you know, violating all sorts of congressional statutes. But that's another case. uh, That's another show and another discussion. For this one, we've got two great people to talk about the Barrett confirmation hearings and what it might mean. So let's get right to it. We now have with us to give their take on the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing. Elise Hoag, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and David Kaplan, NYU adjunct professor and also author of The Most Dangerous Branch, Elise and David. Both of you, welcome back to Skullduggery. And uh, my first question to both of you is, what, if anything... Did we learn during the morning and afternoon questioning of Amy Coney Barrett? Elise, you go first.
0: You know, I think that we learned that the GOP is offering a master class in gaslighting. It has been so on display on everything from, you know, Tillis claiming we doth protest too much about Amy Coney Barrett's intentions or record on undermining Roe, all the way to sort of rewriting the history around religious liberty that Ted Cruz did, which I think you guys know I covered extensively in my book, being grounded in the claim to keep segregated schools in 1969, all the way to this sort of like new version of the RBG rule, which they have been perpetuating for some time. I found it most acute when they are actually arguing with themselves about the things they can't bait the Democrats into arguing with them on, namely rebalancing the court and the potential conversation about expanding the court that could unfold at some future date. It seems their way of both sides the whole conversation about the power grab happening at the court and also this sort of claim that this nominee is being victimized, grounded in her faith, when there's absolutely no evidence of that. And in fact, they can't get anyone to sort of take that line of questioning precisely because this nominee's record speaks for itself. It doesn't have anything to do with personal faith.
2: David? Well, I might quibble with the use of the word verb learned because I don't think I've learned nothing. (laughs) Um, I think we've seen once again that Democrats are really bad at asking questions. I don't think it would matter. You know, you could have Clarence Darrow during cross-examination here, but they're really bad at it. And I think we've seen, as one would expect, that Barrett is pretty good at not answering questions and parroting answers given by other nominees. But, you know, it's all kabuki theater. We know the outcome. And I've stopped listening to much of it or have it on in the background while I'm checking the weather forecast. It is remarkably unuseful and cynical and depressing.
3: Let me ask both of you this, just picking up on what David just said, because I mean before the show, Mike and I were talking about how Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Democratic Senator from Rhode Island, talked about master classes. He gave a masterclass on the influence of dark money in the the federal judiciary, I mean, Republicans pouring and conservatives pouring dark money into that process, didn't ask a single question. I can't remember a Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee not asking any questions of the nominee. And then Ted Cruz gave his lecture and barely asked any questions. So I guess the question is, how would you like to see this hearing, the, the time that they have is opportunity used in sort of in the realm of, of reality, because we're not probably not going to go back to the pre-Bork days when things really started to go downhill. But what, what could the Democrats have done? And i just asked that of both of you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I would quibble with David a little bit. I think we just saw an incredible line of reasoning about the record of this nominee from Amy Klobuchar. I just thought she was fabulous in the way she laid out the track record and you know allowed the nominee to respond, but also drew necessary conclusions. But I think where I do agree with you is the fact that, look, there is a consensus, no question, that the thing that is central to the hearings is the legitimacy of the process. And that to some degree, this nominee is inconsequential, right? We have what, 7 million votes already cast before this thing started. We have, you know, uh, Republicans who are doing a 180 degree reversal on where they were when they stonewalled Merrick Garland's hearings. And I think the Democrats are really actually well within their rights to put the process on trial. And that puts them squarely where the American people are. The American people are very clear that they would like to have the opportunity to decide the next president and the next president should actually fill this seat on the bench. Actually, if I could just break in there, because I was a little surprised
1: that the Democrats didn't do more of that in their On Monday, all the opening statements were about the ACA, Obamacare and the upcoming case. Very little, much less about the fact that the nomination is being rushed through. And even today in the questioning, you got some of it, but it wasn't front and center, which is what I expected it to be, because I thought they'd get the most traction out of this process is not proper, this is not legitimate. I think that's right, Mike. And you get
2: the sense that the coordination between the senators and their staffs maybe wasn't as good as it could have been. To the extent that they recognize they're not going to change the outcome, they're really speaking to listeners, uh, to potential voters. I wasn't suggesting, by the way, that some of the speeches by White House and others weren't good. I was only talking about their questioning. And if you go into this hearing on the assumption that you're going to try to score points with Barrett or embarrass her, in her lack of response, they're just not very good at it. I mean, for example, where she talks, she sings the song about textualism. Why doesn't somebody ask her the basic question? What do you do, Judge? What have you done, Judge, when the text ain't clear? The text doesn't always tell you what you're supposed to do, and there can be competing texts. There are lots of general clauses in the Constitution that are at war with each other. There are clauses. At war with each other, the text of the First Amendment versus the text of the copyright clause. Uh, You know, within the First Amendment, separation of church versus free establishment of religion. Why don't? Why doesn't somebody press her on any one of those? Drilling down, you know, the way a good cross-examiner, a good law school professor would be on. What do you do in those situations? Instead, they ask their question about textualism and then read the next question on their list. At some point, you get the impression with some of the really bad questioners. That if she said something like, I kidnapped the Lindbergh baby, they wouldn't hear what was said and engage her. they just go on to the next question. By the way, I, she's sufficiently young that I'm quite sure she did not kidnap the Lindbergh baby.
0: <laughs> if, if you see the court thesis here that I'm not ready to see because I am a di- heard optimist who just believes that there could be that fourth Republican who cares so much about the legitimacy of the court that they'll put the brakes onto it. But if you see David's central thesis that we know the outcome of this confirmation, then what you get to, I wouldn't call it kabuki theater, but I would call it political theater, right? You're trying to drive up the political stakes and consequences for the various players in the equation. And I would argue on that point that the Democrats are doing precisely what they need to do, right? They are Laying bare what is at stake in a way that voters are already enormously responsive to voters, particularly those women in the suburbs that Nate Silver just showed is making the margin of difference in these swing states, they are extraordinarily agitated about the threats to the ACA and Roe versus Wade. And I think these hearings are driving a clear focus on how imminent those threats are. And on the other side, I think the only Republican strategy they have to win over those same voters because they've already seated on the issues essentially is to cast out, right? Like that's what they're trying to do. You don't know what she's gonna do. Well, you know what, her record's clear, but to paint her as a victim. Right to make her sympathetic to that same constituency of voters, and on that, I actually just think they're failing.
3: So, Elise, uh, let's just to break that down a little bit because there's a the short-term political calculus, which is the, the election, the presidential election, and Senate races. A number of members of that committee are in tough uh, Senate re-election battles, and then there's the longer term, which is the fate of a woman's right to choose or the ACA. Now, some of those things might be resolved in the Supreme Court, but there are also going to be battles in state legislatures on abortion, maybe even in Congress if there's a move to to codify Roe versus Wade. So, are you talking about both the short-term and the longer-term political calculus?
0: Yeah, I absolutely am. I think voters have long memories. I think we're still seeing residual effects from those suburban voters of the repeal votes, the Kavanaugh votes, the family separation stuff. That has a lasting imprint on these voters. And I think they will remember. And of course, many of us will help remind them in 22 and 24. I don't think that disappears. But I also think, and you guys speak to this better than me. I'm curious what David has to say, but the best court watchers I know also think that the strongest argument we have for mitigating the worst effects of a radical right majority cemented on the court is to put the legitimacy of the court in question for radical action, right? So you have to slow, you have to do everything you're saying. You have to work the the gain the majority, work the federal legislature, absolutely work at the state houses, which we're already doing. But you also have to call the question in the court of public opinion and make sure Roberts knows that the legitimacy of the court is in question if he, if he actually does what the base wants him to do, what Trump promised, which is take radical action to throw these fundamental rights under the bus.
1: Now, clearly, Roe versus Wade is front and center in this hearing. Obviously, Elise, uh, you're the president of NARAL. This is your core issue. David, you've written a book, The Most Dangerous Game, that does argue, even though you come from a um, liberal perspective, if I might take that uh, the liberty of saying so, you actually argue that uh, Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided and was an example of judicial overreach. So I want to get your take on, uh, both of your take, on whether uh, I thought it was interesting. Judge Barrett said there are a handful of super precedents, Supreme Court decisions, Brown versus Board uh, being one of them, Marbury versus Madison, another. Roe versus Wade is not, in her view, a super precedent. So as a practical matter, if she, assuming she gets on the court, Is she a vote for overturning Roe versus Wade or chipping away at Roe versus Wade? David, you go first. Well, first of
2: all, I wished I'd written The Most Dangerous Game. I've only written The Most Dangerous Branch.
1: Well, whatever. (laughs) It's all a a game to us at Skullduggery, so go ahead. If I had to choose among the books, I wish. But listen, before
2: I get voted off the island again, I am a strong policy legislative proponent of abortion, of a woman's right to choose. All my book says is that as a matter of constitutional law, Roe was a terrible decision. It's not as bad as Bush v. Gore. It's not as probably as bad as Shelby County about voting rights or Citizens United about campaign finance or Heller about gun control if I had to choose between them. But as a matter of constitutional law, it's a lousy opinion An RBG, said as much. Now, that's a different question about now that it's been the law for 50 years, if you if you should overturn it. When, you didn't ask that question. I can answer it in a bit if you want. What's Barrett going to do? Anybody who predicts what she's going to do, or frankly, what the chief justice is going to do, or Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, is a lot smarter or dumber than I am. We know what Thomas is going to do because he's already done it. And I'd be guessing, pretty strongly based on opinions, Alito's gonna, gonna go the same way. But the rest, I'm not sure. If I were a betting man, and I'll play with Skullduggery's pension fund, I would guess that it is more likely, for a variety of reasons, that most of the others, if not all of them, would be happy to chip away. They would support any regulation on abortion that comes before them. They'd strike down virtually nothing but that they would duck the issue of dealing with a state statute that outright banned abortion. Why do you say that? Why do you you say that,
3: David? Why do you say that? What is it about
2: these justices that wouldn't want to take that step? Why would they flinch? Regard for the institution. It isn't particularly now, you know, if, if Biden wins all the more, with court packing, or well, um, what was the, what was the formulation? Court rebalancing, I heard. I, I, yeah. I Thank you. <laughs> you know, I don't think court packing is, is pejorative, but with that now, if not reaching the tipping point, certainly approaching the mainstream. And, and listen, I argue it. I argued for it in my book. I think that the court, as it has done over the decades, will try to remove itself as best it can from the vortex. I think they will try to stay out of the storm if they can. I don't think they'll necessarily do that on November 4th or December 4th with respect to a disputed election or when and, you have different states. Yeah. And groups, l- let's I, get I, Elise yeah, I, I, on I, this. Yeah, no,
3: no, I want to I, I bring Elise in, but I want to ask a specific question, which is, first of all, do you agree with David that you know, if he's betting that he would say that they would not outright overturn Roe? But secondly, if that is the case, is that a distinction without a difference if they're willing to completely chip away at it?
0: Uh, no, I, you know, not only is it a, a distinction without a difference in the real life effect, but that's been happening for quite a long time, right? I mean, there, my home state of Texas is a perfect example where, you know, it's two Texas, there's two is To borrow a phrase from John Edwards, right, like two Americas, it's like if you've got money and you live in a big city- you can have access to abortion if you don't. You're kind of shit out of luck. Am I allowed to say that? Shoot, you I'm are going to have to boot yes. me. Okay, you um, And so, so this is not a futuristic prediction. The question is, how much further are they going to do go, and how? Where do we reach a tipping point in the population that actually just doesn't have access, despite the right remaining? So, you know, one one of the things I really liked about Cory Booker's opening statement is that he actually interrogated what does that look like, feel like, smell like, taste like, if you're a typical American family, right? Like we are litigating these already in state houses, investigation of miscarriages. We had a very high profile case in Alabama, not a lawyer. David may have something to say about this, but um, where a young woman, pregnant woman, shot in the stomach was actually put on trial for manslaughter, of her own fetus, right? Like this is already happening. So I I try really hard to get out of the like theoretical, like would Amy Coney Barrett chip away? But I think David's answer makes my point, right? Which is the GOP at this point is the dog that caught the car. They have over the decades been in an incredibly transactional relationship with a radical minority Who wants an extreme outcome, absolutely on abortion, no question. But like we, you know, we're having conversations in these hearings about contraception and IVF and all of the whole host of things that come when you actually sort of accept a philosophy that life begins at conception, which is a religious distinction, not a medical one. And they have that base and they have mainstream public opinion and they understand mainstream public opinion, right? Like they know what these suburban women are worried about. They know what the polls say and that's why you get people like Tom Tillis being like, ah, she's not really gonna do anything. And I think the the real conversation is absolutely about what's already been done, what else is gonna be done Whether or not you put out this sort of like holy grail of whether Roe stands or not, I'm with David. I don't think we should get rid of Roe to put something better in its place. But I think you need to leave Roe standing and build on top of it. And that's where I think our movement has room to grow. Probably should have started a while ago is how do you cement these rights in stronger jurisprudence, but I don't think that's an excuse for getting rid of Roe when it has real-life consequences that infringe on very basic freedoms and rights of people, and at the same time, those consequences are already being felt in states. And David, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not going to have a choice at some point to take up one of these bans. Like, you're going to have to take Georgia or Missouri or Alabama. of course.
2: The court, of course, controls its docket completely. And if, for example, a state banned abortion outright and the lower courts upheld that ban, which would never happen. So, and if they didn't, then it doesn't get to the Supreme Court because the state appeals and the Supreme Court turns it down and they don't have to deal with the issue. But if for some reason, a lower court upheld a ban, which I can't imagine, not even some of the nuttier federal appeals courts in the country, the Supreme Court could duck the issue by summarily reversing it, no argument, no decision, just say, "See our prior rulings." They've effectively ducked the issue. And these guys play the, the long game. I mean, Barrett just had her bar mitzvah. Well, not really, but she's 48, <laughs> and and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are in their 50s. Roberts, who's been on the court 15 years, you know, is barely is barely 65 years old. I think he's younger than than Isakoff. So they can afford. To play the long game. And while Roe may be near and dear to Barrett's heart, it clearly is. It's not near and dear to the chief's heart. I doubt it is as much so to Gorsuch or Kavanaugh.
1: I think you mean overturning Roe might be near or dear to Barrett's. Barrett's, But I don't think it is to
2: Roberts or some of the the others. And if they put off to a calmer time dealing with a question or doing the deed, 2023 or 2025, what's the big deal? It matters to the hard right and to evangelicals. I don't think it particularly matters to others. And for Roberts, for example, he's got bigger projects. He wants to finish, perhaps, gutting the Voting Rights Act. He wants to finish what Citizens United began. He doesn't want to get stuck in the mire with Roe. And I suspect that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are in the same camp. We all talk about Roe as if it's a central issue, and and listen, I think the right to choose as a political matter is. I'm just not sure it's the judicial, uh, project that we assume that all the conservatives, all the on the court want, want.
0: But David, isn't it true? I mean, the the research shows both in 1982 when the Federalist Society formed, as well as as late as 2019, and in independent research that. Part of why hostility to Roe is a good litmus test is because it does map so well onto a hostility to other forms of social progress, like the Voting Rights Act, like broader forms of gender justice. And what's interesting to me about that is how honestly, refreshingly honestly, Senator Mike Lee has laid his cards on the table this week, right? He's literally saying the courts are there to protect us from what the majority of the people want and to make sure that the minority has a pathway to maintain.
2: Let me make two points on what you just said. Yes, those in politics, not in the majority on this or that issue. Certainly conservatives look to the court um, to win battles. You know, just like liberals did, for 40 years, one of the points of my book, in some respects, is a pox on both your houses. The conservatives may be doing it now because they're in control of many parts of, of the federal courts, but liberals did it for a generation or two. So I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for the brief against conservatives. My argument is stop relying on the Supreme Court, stop well, yeah. asking, uh, stop rooting for the triumphalism of the court, and better and better. To root for democracy, but to your point about Mike Lee and other actors in on the, the abortion question, I think all of that is true. I'm only saying, and goes to Danny's question: is I don't think for the Supreme Court, for a majority of them, it's that important. Other issues are, and we yeah, you and I probably
0: diverge on Kavanaugh, but and we can we have, have, have that
2: conversation later. Nor have we discussed the biggest project of them all. For judicial conservatives, which is taking apart the federal administrative state. They want to diminish the power of regulatory agencies. That is far more
1: important to them and will have a far greater effect on American government than Roe. Assuming that Barrett is going to get confirmed, and barring uh, more Republican senators getting sick and unable to vote, or somebody having a complete change of heart, which does not Seem likely she will. Let me ask you the question, both of you, the question that Joe Biden refuses to answer, which is, should the Democrats, if they get back control of the Senate in January, expand the court? Elise, you're running one of the big political advocacy groups on the court. Is uh, Is that going to be a position is that a position you favor and will you be pushing for it if the Democrats retake control of the Senate?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that Joe Biden has been wise actually to deflect the question because that this is one of those gaslighting things, right? They are trying to. <laughs> well, how is that
1: gaslighting? Why? Oh, look, why? Don't voting does. David? <laughs> don't, no, because uh, here's I mean, why it's
0: gaslighting, Mike, and I, yeah. I'm serious about this. There is, and David's going to argue with me vociferously, but there is a. False, like both sides, you know, equilibrating of this. That's just simply not historically true, right? And the fact is that there was a concerted intentional strategic effort by the right to obstruct through most of Obama's years, right? And keep a lot of those benches. And we can argue, and we did argue for what it's worth that Obama needed to be more aggressive. That's fine. But the Democrats haven't obstructed filling seats at every level of the court. So now we've got a court from bottom to top that has been disproportionately filled by one president who was not elected by the majority of the people. And that's actually pretty terrifying, if you think about it, in terms of an independent judicial branch and what it is there to do and to balance. So I think that they are this is where they're trying to go. You know, they talk about court packing all through the no, this no hearing, I, I get the though, argument, yeah.
1: but you're you're making an argument for expanding the court, but I don't hear you I, so saying I think
0: it. that there is, yeah, no, and I will i, I f fi- I'm a Democratic Party platform committee member. I filed the language on court reform. I own that. I just always think there are a lot of different pathways to actually re-legitimize and rebalance the court. And I don't know why we focus on one, which is like adding seats, right? We talk about term limits. We talk they're the the framers, you know, what was the average lifespan when they wrote the constitution and gave lifetime appointments. So I think the conversation is overdue. I just think when we start from the place of like, there is a singular solution here, Ultimately, at the end of the day, the question we're going to have to answer is, do the American people invest the court with the confidence and legitimacy to uphold the decisions in service of democracy? And if the answer is no, then we have to find solutions to that.
2: I'm trying to remember what it is you thought I would disagree with because I don't want to disappoint. But (laughs) I support increasing the size of court membership, between the, the hardcover of my book in 2018 and then the paperback in 2019, I came around to that position. I wrote an afterword to the paperback endorsing court packing. I think it will be terrible for the court institutionally. In, so then why are you for it? Because I think in the long term, it's the only hope for the court. You can, basic game theory will tell you that you can't respond to a bully to someone who doesn't play the game right, you can't respond in any other way than tit for tat. It's the only way that long-term you may, you may get out of prison. You know, if you want to go to the prisoner's dilemma analogy, I think you've got to burn down the institution in the hope of saving it. Now, I don't know if that would be five years or 50, but eventually if the Republicans come to understand that you will play as dirty as they do, that if you play hardball like they do, and so far the Democrats- They'll, they'll are, play dirtier. Well, what they'll do is they'll increase the size of the court themselves, and eventually you'll have to put Southwest seats up on the bench. You know, the, the court will be so large, but- that That's the argument against doing what you're- Oh, no, it's not. I don't, well, I understand that argument, but ultimately what happens when both sides play tit for tat, when the court simply looks like a, pro, a pure proxy for- the presidents who put the justices there. When the court becomes absurdly large, then maybe both sides come to disarm together. They decide that a constitutional amendment on term limits, getting rid of life tenure, is a good idea. Or maybe they start appointing people the way we long appointed people, which was chiefly based on qualifications with some sense of political allegiance. Among the many, you know, frauds told about Amy Coney Barry, is that she's being appointed for her qualifications. She is certainly bright, she certainly did great in law school, but she's being appointed, not for for those reasons, she's being appointed because of the belief that she's gonna vote, quote unquote, the right way on issues. And the idea that qualifications alone in this environment determine whether you go there is patently absurd. So I don't like the idea of expanding the size of the court. But after Garland, which was unprecedented, and after doing what they're doing with Barry, which is unprecedented, we might call it norms busting, then I see no choice for the Democrats than to respond in kind. It's sad we don't teach our children to punch the bully who punches them. Well, maybe I did, the older guy, he was bigger, but I don't see any other choice.
1: A question of constitutional law here, expanding the court can be done by statute, but if I heard you correctly, term limits would have to be by constitutional amendment?
2: Correct. Life tenure, though it doesn't say life tenure, but it says you serve as long as good judicial behavior. I forgot the exact phrase. Everybody agrees that Supreme Court justices serve for life. The interesting question, and it's one of the proposals out there, is maybe Could Congress pass a law adding the number of justices to the court and saying that any justice over 70 who will continue to pay and who can continue to be involved in, for example, the decision of which cases we take, anyone over 70, though, can't participate in rulings on actual cases? And the question would be, is that, you know, splitting the difference? that you're not getting rid of them. They still have their jobs. You're just limiting the kinds of cases. I can't imagine the
1: sitting justices.
2: uh, approving. They don't get a vote. It's up to the legislature. No, but the constitutionality would be before the court. Yes. But the the justice, you're quite right. And the justices would be in in an untenable position of, in effect, deciding if they still can hear the very case that they're hearing, and that would amount to, unlike all the other faux-constitutional crises we've had, that would amount to a real one, and it would ultimately depend on, you know, what the citizenry chooses to accept. At some level, you know, both of us are in agreement. Ultimately, whatever else you want to say about the minority protections, the majority of the, of the Supreme Court protects, or the majoritarian instincts that obviously Congress reflects, at some point, the Constitution is what we make of it. It ultimately belongs to us. It doesn't belong to the justices and it has long, you know, it's long been said and accepted as dogma. Am I allowed to use the word dogma? (laughs) It's it's long been accepted as dogma that the Supreme Court is the supreme law of the land. And, you know, we, we said that and we've accepted that liberals, especially in the era of civil rights, but that's not really right. And the language of supreme law of the land is something that's 50 years old. And of course, it's a judicial creation, way back when to Marbury against Madison. Ultimately, it's our constitution. And I've already said, I don't like the idea of court packing. I endorse it with only sadness, but it reflects the people exerting their sovereignty. And to hear Lindsey Graham and some of these other hypocrites, Ben Sass, sanctimonious Sass, telling me about preserving the constitution is, I don't know if it's more revolting or hilarious.
0: Well, I thought that was the most robust and vociferous (laughs) defense of court packing I've ever heard. So there you go.
1: Only on Skullduggery.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to come back to Roe versus Wade for just one second and ask Elise, assuming that Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed and that either the court with her as the most recent justice overturns it or at least does not restore it to where women's uh, rights to choose, you know, know, those rights are restored in any significant way. What is your strategy? Where where do you go from here? And we touched on a little bit talking about, obviously, uh, in in the state legislatures, but also I I know there's been more talk about codifying uh, Roe in Congress. That doesn't seem like a strategy that necessarily is going to work for a variety of reasons, but I just want to know.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I actually think that's low-hanging fruit. I just think it's low-hanging fruit. Again, I love the idea of forcing the GOP to vote on this. They just simply don't have the numbers on their side and getting that. They've never had to take the vote. Right. Well, like they so you're making a
3: you're making a political point, which is a good point, And it might it might pass. My point is that it will immediately it's, be challenged by it's states. Insufficient.
0: Correct. It's it's a, it is a important look. It, it, there are lots of things that need to happen. And part of why I wrote the book and part of what I totally agree with David on is we have got to learn to play the long game in ways that the progressive movement, not just the reproductive rights movement or the women's movement, is just like historically not that good at, right? And so we've got to learn to play the long game. So I do think there's two bills already in Congress that if you did a vote to codify row and you did the Women's Health Protection Act, which is modeled off the Voting Rights Act so that you create equity and access, you know, by preempting some state restrictions. And you did the Each Woman Act, which would remove the Repressive Hyde Amendment, which is Put financial barriers, which RBG hated. She hated the Hyde Amendment because of this equity question. You know, that that would actually create a foundation from which then you start to really build the kind of legislation that grounds itself in. The right to equality and equal access, which I believe is what RBG was driving at in terms of the fragility of the existing protection and the need to make it sacrosanct in a Fundamental right that most Americans understand simply from a a clean read of the Constitution. Right. And I think that that comes through state based legislation. We have blueprints on that. That's what the marriage equality movement did. And that is already underway. It will take time. So I don't think you can only do that and not use federal majorities to actually Codify what we already can in, in statute. And again, I go back to part of the reason I'm not quite as pessimistic as David and the need to engage in this arms race with the right is we do have the majority on our side. And I do think the threats to the legitimacy of the court can potentially, if we stay loud and out there, can potentially stall the worst impacts while we use these other tools in our toolbox to build durable, lasting change.
2: If I could just throw out one, maybe it's for our next class, for our next podcast. But let me throw out a question that doesn't get a lot of attention. Let's assume, uh, whatever happens to Roe, let's assume a statute passes in a state or at the federal level, codifying Roe, championing a woman's right to choose. Would conservatives ever bring a challenge and might there be a receptive ear among some judges and some justices to a challenge saying that any statute Protecting the the destruction of a fetus is a violation of the Constitution. Right now, we say have that we, you know, we have a right, a constitutional right to abortion. Maybe the fetus has a right to live and that uh, the conservative right takes the far more aggressive position.
0: Well, but they already are. They already are. No, they're not in are. court. No, oh, Fetal personhood is already in so many of these state laws. And let's let's remember, over a dozen states have already codified Roe, either constitutionally or statutorily. So this is not a idea. This is actually... Uh,
3: yeah. I mean, I think the more likely challenge is going to be a, a state's rights challenge. I mean, along the lines of the ACA, that the federal, you know, the Congress can't mandate states how they provide health care or, you know, license, how they license medical professionals. No, right. I, I mean-
2: I, I'm saying... Leaving aside the issue of whether Congress could do this, if a state passed a very pro-choice statute, you could imagine conservatives coming forth and saying that the federal constitution protects a fetus's rights, so that that state law is unconstitutional.
1: As as I listened to uh, Ted Cruz today, he was making the point that if Roe was overturned. It would simply return the question of reproductive freedom <laughs> to the political process, and that's where it should be. So it would be a complete flip-flop for the Ted Cruz's of the world to take that position after arguing, just simply overturn Roe so the people can decide these questions on their wait, own, Wade Wait, Mike, did, did you talk- Mike, you're talking about flip-flops from legislators. <laughs> from the, yeah, but, and- you know,
0: I, I find that the most disingenuous argument. As I always say, you don't have those people marching on Washington every anniversary of Roe with signs that say federalism now. That is not their goal. Their goal is absolutely what David is saying. It is, from the moment of conception, making a woman or a pregnant person a person of less rights than a fertilized egg. That is absolutely their goal. It fails every time it's on the ballot. Personhood has been on the ballot, what, a dozen times. It fails every time it's put in front of the voter. It is in some of these statutes, which have been stayed at the lower court level, but ultimately will have their day in court. The
2: Constitution speaks to protecting, you can't deprive uh, someone uh, of their life without due process. And I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but at some point, it's obviously before I wrote my book, I asked Justice Scalia in a background conversation at the court, you know, which journalists from Newsweek and others did. And I once asked him, so this Roe stuff, you just want to get this business of abortion out of the area of constitutional law, right? Yeah, you want to return it to legislatures where it belongs, Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what did he say? And I asked him. So what about a challenge someday, not in the current environment, of course, where Roe lives? What about an environment, a constitutional challenge to any law that allows an abortion? Exactly. You know, doing exactly what the bad lefties are doing now, but doing it. To so support... what did he say? What did he, Kaplan? say? <laughs> he smiled and he didn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> and I took that. I mean, ever since, I've always had the impression that, you know, if the, if you own the courts and you follow Justice Brennan, the great liberal lion's rule of how constitutional law works. And, and of course, how did constitutional law work? He would hold up five fingers and he would say, you know, with five fingers, you can do anything. And I wonder if the conservatives think they have, oh, for example, let me count six votes. They might be got they might begin That line of constitutional argument wouldn't surprise me because as as we know, you're never going to get that outcome in state
1: legislature. All right. Last last question. And it's for Elise. When you were last on Skullduggery, you told us that you were going to be hoping to be spending up to thirty two million dollars in independent expenditures on this election. That was before Justice Ginsburg passed and uh, Barrett was nominated. I wanted to check in and see where you are on that now, whether this has led to even more money coming your way to try to influence the election and how it looks to you right now, particularly in the Senate.
0: Yeah, I mean, the influx of energy, and that is both monetary resources and volunteer energy with the passing of RBG was unbelievable. I mean, really just... Flooded in, and it did allow us to expand our voter contact in key universes in states like Michigan and Georgia and Arizona. And, you know, I'm feeling, I, I am for the first time, I am not inherently a short term optimist. I am a long term optimist. I do believe the, you know, arc of justice is long, or what is it? The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Uh, but I've been relatively pessimistic on short term outcomes. I am changing. I really, really think that they've overplayed their hands. And I think that we're seeing that in just the expanding playing field. I mean, it's reminding me of 2006 when I was at move on and we kind of couldn't keep up with the states that became in play. I mean... Alaska's in play, right? We've got in the 48 hours after RBG passed, Mike Espy made more in Mississippi than Cindy Hyde-Smith had made in all of Q2. You know, and and I loved, by the way, we haven't mentioned this, I love Lindsey Graham's crocodile tears now about money in politics now that Jamie Harrison has raised, what what is it, 57 million? So I, you know, I don't take anything for granted. I worry about all of the legal challenges that we're hearing a lot about from from the legal experts vis-a-vis voter suppression. I know my parents have, you know, had a lot of trouble in Texas with ballot drop-off places. I think that stuff matters. That being said, I think they have overplayed their hand. I think they needed these swing women, particularly suburban swing women, for that margin. I think they put too many eggs in the like, we're gonna nominate a female justice and that's gonna do it like it did for Reagan in 84 with Sandra Day O'Connor. And I don't think it's working. And I think all of the data we have um, is that people are being very responsive to our messages. We've got expanding universes of voters to contact. We are pedal to the metal on the election. And I think we absolutely can take the White House and flip the Senate. I think what we do next is gonna be really fun.
1: <laughs> I admire such optimism. Yeah. New Zealand, you're holding up. What's your? I think
0: I think David's already booked a flight to New Zealand. He's telling yeah.
1: us. All right. Well, um, and this is a podcast. Elise, you held up your book. So, but it's a podcast, so people didn't couldn't see it. It's the lie that binds. If I got it correct. So listen, and uh, Kaplan, we already mentioned your book, even if I butchered the title, it was close <laughs> enough, uh, so I won't repeat it. Uh, Elise and David, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank Thank you guys.
1: This is the best.